Hello everyone, we're the tanks of Novastink Tank. Uh, we're the Narrative Insights Committee. This is TJ. And I'm Camille. And today we're going to be kind of going over Professor Hanley's bibliography before we start our interview. We're going to be going over several of his works today, or the themes of it, themes that are associated with his works. For example, Extinctions Without Differences, Zane Green and the Mormon Question, Belonging, Plural Marriage, Gay Marriage, and the Subversion of the Good Order, Freeways in the City of Angels, and Working Sites, Texts, Territories, and Cultural Capital in American Cultures. We're kind of be kind of going over the themes of these works. By the way, all of his works are going to be listed in the bibliography below. And we're also going to be kind of discussing the themes of disidentification and identification with groups and how people leave groups and how those things affect people's lives afterwards and we're also going to be talking more about his profession as an English professor and how he thinks his profession is relevant to the world and how fiction kind of touches on the topics of disidentification and identification. Hello, Professor Handley. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. We've all read your stuff, so it feels like we all know about you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Just funny. Yeah, I, I think what really stuck out to me, at least was in your class, is I could see how, like, your life played into your um, academic passion so much, and that's really nice to see. Kind of like a narrative arc for someone's interests versus just kind of being like, oh, I'm interested in this. And then they just kind of study that for like 25 years or however long people study those things. So our first question um, is kind of similar to what I just mentioned. But so looking into like your research and the topics that we looked at in class, you often discuss the expectations and traditions that different collectives um, offer. I remember in our class, we talked about that guy who used to be in a frat, and that was actually a really interesting discussion. Um, and then we obviously talked a lot about religion and politics and how media participates in that. Um, so the first question that we wanted to ask was, how do you think collectives has shaped your individual behaviors and one's perception of the world? And like, how much agency do you think one has in relation to these like external influences versus internal motivations? Uh, well, I'll try to answer that both personally and generally, um, mm -hmm. because my personal experience doesn't inform everything about my Right, of course. Yeah. Um, it's obviously through a lot of observation of all kinds of groups. But, you know, the first thing is, of course, human beings are incredibly social creatures. I mean, it's a, an absolute necessity, our social being for survival. I mean, the earliest forms of social of human community were you know evolved around the need for food so um, we are totally dependent creatures on other people so there's this profound paradox about group identity because on the one hand we need to belong to groups but then uh, on a personal individual level we're spending our entire lives figuring out what groups we want to belong to or not um, and so it's a constant evolution and i think that you know, I don't know that I would have chosen Mormonism um, as an adult. I mean, a lot of people do and are converted as they are to other religions, but I happen to be raised in that church. And so as with many group identities, beginning with our family, we don't choose them, right? They're chosen for us. 
And part of growing up is deciding what to continue to belong to or not. I'm happy to continue to belong to my family, for example. Um, they're wonderful people. But I disidentified with the Mormon church once I became an adult and came out as gay. Uh, because obviously, growing up in the church, it was an incredibly almost schizophrenic thing to believe in a religion that at the same time didn't believe in me that right. produced, you know, all kinds of self-hatred and conflict. But what I, what I came to realize, especially as an adult living in a big city where, you know, community exists, but it's fractious and it's, everybody's a bit isolated, especially in Los Angeles with our cars that, you know, I really admire the fact that I grew up in uh, a church community. I, I think that there's a lot of good things about Mormon culture that, you know, people look out for each other um, right. materially as well as spiritually and socially. And so it was a really good thing to be a part of a group. But, you know, eventually I disidentified with it. In fact, my scholarship, though, came much later because after being distanced from the church as an active member for many years, it was only later that I began to look at Mormon history and found it fascinating. Mm -hmm. And for reasons that had very little to do with my own personal experience, because I was looking at the 19th century Mormon church, right. which had a completely different kind of, quote, mm -hmm. identity, and yeah. especially in relationship to the American nation. Um, it was a very much a demonized group in the 19th century for polygamy and other reasons. And only after renouncing polygamy did the Mormon church then become part of the American mainstream so that, you know, we could have a Mitt Romney run for president, which would have been unimaginable in the 19th century. Yeah, definitely. So, so the way that that became kind of intellectually fascinating to me, obviously I did feel some connection to the question. I mean, given that my ancestors were these people, and I've thought a lot about what it means to identify with ancestors when in fact they are not like me, <laughs> right? But uh, at least it's part of your family's story. So that kind of uh, need to belong to a group and at the same time distinguish oneself from it, I think is a very common human story. Yeah, some, a really interesting connection is to think of how Mormons historically were originally an outgroup but then you feel like at least felt like you were an outgroup within this group <laughs> and then leaving yeah. in a way you're almost an outgroup because you were Mormon because other people haven't been. So there's so many like layers of kind of rejection while fitting in at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And especially because I was growing up in Westport, Connecticut, I wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't surrounded by Mormons at school. Right. At all. And in fact, being a Mormon, was often something I was criticized for, made embarrassed about, you know, saw me as being very odd. And so that made me feel a bit like a kind of minority mm -hmm. in my high school community. And maybe I came to identify that sense of ostracism with the sense of ostracism I got from the Mormon church itself for being gay. So my sense of who I am is I sort of formed myself through various disidentifications within the group that I was identified with. And I think that's not unusual. So we kind of absorbed the second question that I asked, but um, it was mainly asking about how your expectations about these collectives have, sh have shaped the way that you participate in society. 
and you talked a little bit about city culture. So I guess, do you feel like in a way you you wish that you were like in a smaller city or do you think like city plays a really important role in development of your own identity? Because I guess it kind of controls what communities you're exposed to. Because at least for me, I see like LA is having so many different communities because it's so spread out. Like there's a lot of availability, but at the same time, there's a lot of distance because there's like physical distance, you know? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And I think we're seeing it played out in our politics right now. You know, the the recent election shows this, once again, this huge rural urban divide. And I guess I do identify with cities and I would use the term cosmopolitanism, which uh, Anthony Appiah, the philosopher, has written a wonderful book about. Cosmopolitanism can be talked about sneeringly as being elitist or or what have you, but but the way that he looks at it is the way I choose to look at it too, is that cosmopolitanism, in other words, living in, I mean, cosmos means the universe. So living as a kind of isolated entity in this larger constellation of human beings um, is a challenge to one's sense of ethics. It means that one has to learn to live with difference. And so in a way, I think the cosmopolitan experience is America writ large, not some kind of diminished or elitist version of America. In fact, um, if we take the idea of America as being about a pluralistic society in which we are going to be identified through dissent, right? That our founding right is to dissent, that we are not a given national identity based on ethnicity or religion or common language, but instead that we all adhere to documents that give us the right to disagree. That if that is the form of American identification, then a city forces one to sort of live with that difference. And I love that. Now, it's not that I disparage rural communities or anything like that. I find them utterly appealing in a way. They're very comfortable, yeah. Very comfortable. And it's like when I've gone to other countries like Israel or Poland or Ireland, where I feel like there's a people, right? And even the big cities of those countries, it feels like more of a small town feel because everybody kind of looks alike and and they share maybe a religion. Um, but uh, of course, Israel is incredibly diverse. I don't mean to be reducing any of these nations to one, but I mean, it is, it is a difference that any American will feel going to these countries and that a lot of people, Americans in big cities feel when they go to small towns. I mean, even when I go visit family in Utah, Utah is a very diverse state these days, but nonetheless, you know, they're, they're just a lot more white people. And I'm just not used to that in Los Angeles. Um, it doesn't make me a better person. It doesn't make them less interesting or valuable people to live among people who look more white, but it is, foreign. It seems odd. And I wish more Americans had more experience of Americans. I think that would allow us to identify through our difference more readily um, to make that e pluribus unum idea more possible. If we could even just begin to imagine through even casual experience that there, there are all kinds of Americans and that that's actually interesting. I mean, that's the thing about a cosmopolitan ethic is that you end up loving the fact that people are different mm -hmm. instead of group identity formations being about disidentification with some other group, be it immigrants or black people or whatever a certain kind of group is being pitted against 
that that I think is what is tragic about our politics. And I don't mean to be too partisan here, but it does seem to me that the Republican Party for the last, well, for most of my life since the 1960s has really identified itself too often, usually during campaigns, by creating groups of others that that they want to corral their own in identifying against. And that to me is really unfortunate. Yeah, there's so many other questions to to discuss just because, you know, even looking at cities, it feels like the best way to stand out is to be the most, the best way to fit in is to be the most different almost, you know, to be that you're you're different from everybody else. And that's seen as, as an advantage when and a rural community to fit in is, is seen as an advantage to be the most comfortable. Yeah, and the the downside of that, and one of my favorite writers, Joan Didion, writes about this. I mean, she's a great Los Ange- writer of Los Angeles and of California, but she describes what she calls atomization, um, the kind of splintering apart of society into little individual groups. And that has its that has its problems because then we are a socially cohesive whole. So if we're all trying to stand out as individuals and define ourselves against everybody, then there isn't a kind of social web that makes life more manageable and also, I think, more meaningful. Yeah. Professor Henley, if I were to ask a question kind of related to this, um, how does what you exactly break away from kind of inform your present narrative? Or, for example, like if you break away from religion or if you or an uh, independence movement breaks away from a certain um, nation state. How does what you break away from inform who you are today? That's a really good question. Um, I try to be very, very circumspect about my own disidentifications because I've seen, let me just take the Mormon case. I know a lot of uh, ex-Mormons or you could call them post-Mormons and they come in all varieties. <laughs> And I know that there's one variety that I also disidentify with, and it's the variety that demonizes the Mormon church. And and maybe this is because I have a religious brother, but I don't think it's just because I love him and he's a great guy and he's religious. So how could I condemn the Mormon church? I think it's just hobbling ourselves when we think of entire groups of people in a monochromatic way. Um, And I think that especially if we're going to live in a pluralist society, we can't just look at the label attached to somebody and immediately think ill of them. And then I think about how that was in fact the way that the United States treated the Mormons. I mean, they were persecuted far more than any religious group in our history. I mean, their property was taken away. They were imprisoned for their religious beliefs and practices. And, you know, that's that's not a history to, to model. So, you know, trying to find the humanity and interest in others is, I think, important. Because if you don't, I've seen this happen with some people, they become so embittered by, and understandably so, I mean, to become embittered by the the suffering that you experience through homophobia or whatever in a religious group can easily embitter one. But then you don't want your identity to be, I shouldn't speak for everybody, I, I, I just realized I couldn't become a happy person if I was continually resenting the Mormon church. And in fact, that would mean that I was way too identified with it. And, and I think this is where literature really kind of shaped who I, who I am, because in the process of reading fictional lives, you're, you're always being asked implicitly by a work of creative verbal art to imagine another, right? 
And the wonderful thing about novels is that they are not preaching at you or telling you what to do, but you willingly consent, you, you consent to enter a world in which you are then free to decide how you feel about this character, that character, or about the situation in the world of a novel. And I think that ends up, it doesn't always make people more compassionate or empathetic or anything, but I think that it can be a way to displace oneself. In other words, I think it's important to be other to ourselves, to understand how much more complex we are than any label could ever describe us. And I understand the value of identity politics and the necessity of them, absolutely. But I also worry that too much emphasis on identity, as if identity is ever simple, limits us as well. And so it's always a balancing act. And I think, again, there are groups that are absolutely important to want to belong to, to feel empowered by, to feel a sense of community and of commitment to certain ideals. Um, and at the same time, we always have to know that we're not just a member of that group. I mean, Freud said that there's something about groups that sort of makes people less brave in their moral choices when we submit to a group. Right, yeah. I mean, you brought up so many really good points. How have you personally prevented yourself from getting swallowed up in different groups? Because say, you know, you left um, the Mormon church, how did you prevent yourself from just being swallowed up into other communities? Like, well, it's not as if there were a number of communities that tried to make claims on me. I mean, a religion is a very specific kind of commitment. Most and, definitely, yeah. It's just know, easy kind of to get lost in, like you said, almost identity politics, or like a lot of people will just, they're, they're like soul uh, personality traits will come from a few core um, aspects of themselves. So I was just kind of interested thinking like, okay, so you have this label that was integral to your life for so long and then you leave it. What do you do to fill that void almost? I wouldn't necessarily think of it as a void. I mean, it is, it is a loss. Mm -hmm. It is a loss. But just because you leave a group doesn't mean you don't retain within you a lot of the things that that, that group gave you and that you gave to that group. So I, I found a kind of very lovely continuity with my past. I mean, I, I love going back to Utah. I love hearing about what the church is up to these days. I mean, during Prop 8, I'll admit, I went into a kind of rage about the fact that the Mormon church was actively trying to intervene in California civil liberties questions. You know, it's not been a rosy ride, but, yeah. but one thing about an academic community, which I think is so misunderstood by a lot of people in this country who like to demonize you folks, you young people who are into, quote, cancel culture and, you know, you're so caring. I, I actually have never, I mean, I've encountered certain kinds of censorship or whatever on a campus, but not really. I mean, well, I think it's definitely real. Let me tell you that we really? have personally experienced just in our org. And it's, it's really sad because these are people that you care about and you understand why they do it. It's uh, weird because we're on the same side. Like we're all trying to get to the same goal. We just go, we just do it in different ways, you know? Yeah. Well, um, Freud has this wonderful notion in civilization and it's discontents, uh, a wonderful phrase, at least. It's called the narcissism of minor differences. And what's interesting is that he says it's when groups who have so much, you know, when there's so much in common within a certain group, certain minor differences can explode into major schisms. 
And you see this actually in the history of early Christianity. Elaine Pagels, the religious scholar, has talked about the origins of the notion of Satan as an evil entity. Originally, Hasatan in, in uh, archaic Hebrew meant God's messenger or advocate. But it was when Jewish Christians demonized those Jews who didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah that then the notion of a kind of evil force developed. And you see those schisms in Sunni and Shia Islam. There's even a splinter group in, within Mormonism. And then of course in families, you know, that, so these kinds of incredible animosities can develop between people who have otherwise so much in common. So it's, it's very yeah. understandable. So this is kind of a, a switch in topic, but just for like our listeners, what exactly is your job? And like, what do you get like paid to do? <laughs> Um, academia is very nebulous and hard to explain and different for everybody. Uh. <laughs> okay, well, my job, I'm an associate professor of English at USC. Uh, that means I'm, on, uh, I'm a tenured professor. Mm -hmm. um, my job is, they actually outline it in terms of percentages. So 40% of my job is teaching, which includes mentoring, um, working with graduate students as well as undergraduate students directing dissertations, et cetera, the whole gamut of, that is involved. What was your dissertation on when you went up for It was on uh, Western American literature. So yeah, teaching has, I mean, it's not just the classroom time, it's a lot of stuff, advising, et cetera. Et cetera. And then 40% is research and then, um, and publication, and then 20% is service, which can be huge, depending on how much you give to oh, yeah. different academic organizations inside and outside the university. Um, but so what am I paid to do? Um, <laughs> I, I recently heard somebody say, to, they said, uh, my university doesn't have to pay me for teaching because she meant it's just a joy. It really is. Like I, sometimes I'm like, I don't know why I'm paid to do this. I love teaching, but you can pay me to grade papers. Part of me is just like, why do we even have grades anymore with certain classes? Like it's just better off not, <laughs> but yeah. that's a whole other conversation. Um, it's interesting to hear your take because both my parents are science academia professors. Oh, really? oh wow. And they do the same thing. They do the percentages. So I thought that was very cool to hear. Yeah. So on the same topic, why, um, why do you study so much? Like you just write a lot about sex and kind of like the class, right? Church, sex, and state. Uh, why do you think that's important? Like, why is that the, do you do it out of interest or, or like, why do you think that these things are worth writing about and exploring so heavily? Well, um, oh, that's a huge question. Mm -hmm. um, we read together three guineas, right? By yeah. Virginia. Um, that was great. <laughs> I, I first became interested in gender through Virginia Woolf. Um, and I, I see gender as one of the profoundly structuring categories in culture, right? I mean, sex is never just about sex, right? Sex is about right. everything else. It, yes. It's about that's power, it's about politics, it's about money. And marriage uh, is also one of those structuring principles, as you know, from the class that through centuries has defined you know, the transfer of property, the forming of alliances between families, uh, the way of dealing with racial and ethnic exclusions, et cetera, and its relationship to na national identity as well. So I just find it a, a really fascinating. It's not that all my research is all about gender and sex, but it is central. And, and so that's become really fascinating to me. One of these 
topics that we were thinking about discussing was this idea of a critical period. Um, and this is a neuroscience, I, I don't know if you're familiar, it's like a neuroscience concept that's saying between certain ages, people are most likely to have intense development and learning, right? Like this is why kids can learn languages really quickly. Um, but there's also critical periods for identity. So I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on this critical period concept for identity because you seem to be a living example that you that identity is mutable and changing and dynamic and it's not stagnant. I guess thinking about that concept, how do you feel like that has played out in your own life? Or how do you think other people can take advantage of uh, these critical periods? Or do you reject this notion of an identity critical period altogether? I, I, I don't reject it. It's sort of new to me. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it, it makes perfect sense to me. And I don't think there's a universal rule. I mean, I, I, I think it's also a matter of kinds of experiences that shape identity. And one of them is seemingly age-based in our culture, and that is 18 to 22. Um, I mean, just the fact that we live in a culture where people are expected uh, to go to college if they can and to leave home and move in and meet all these new people, mm -hmm. that is a profoundly formative experience. And I can tell you from experience that, you know, I'm still friends with people I met in my freshman dorm mm -hmm. and we have identified with each other over time. And during this pandemic, for example, um, in the early part of it, you know, I was like, oh, let's, let's get a Zoom reunion together with this group and that group. And, and so after all these decades, these people who meant so much to me then and continue to do so, uh, you know, we're, we're all checking in with each other um, because that was a profoundly transformative experience. And I think that one of the deep values of college, which I, I feel so badly for my freshmen this semester in an yeah, really option class because they're not there together. They're just there on the Zoom window. Um, but uh, hopefully we'll all get to meet eventually and they'll get to have more of the college experience because that is profoundly shaping to encounter people who just think and feel and believe differently than you and look differently from you. and you know, come from different places. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a thrilling experience. That's sort of like the cosmopolitan experience that I was talking about, because it's funny, you know, we think of USC or UCLA, you know, like people are Trojans or Bruins, right? That yeah. that's the kind of superficial identity that has to do with sports teams, that's and, just fun, yeah. and fun, <laughs> but also fundraising, right? Cause they're trying to get you to identify with, uh, you know, that name, the Trojan, so that you'll give money for the rest of your life. You know, the, the tuition dollars continue to be spent, you know, and, and that is one way to do it is you get everybody's, you know, and of course it's done through disidentification. We are not Bruins, right? So just look at how many college campuses in this country have one chief rival, right? Because that is so central to determining an identity. But of course, that's not just what it means to go to college, right? It, to yeah, become yeah. a football fan. Um, but it's interesting to think about, you know, when you're without even consenting, you're off to the Coliseum to go cheer and you're all, you know, suddenly you're yeah. part of the team. <laughs> but the great thing about a university is that the one thing, and it's sort of like the American nation, the one thing we're all identifying with is the importance of free speech, Supposedly, that's our ideal, and lately it's under threat by people on the left, as not just the right. Um, so free speech is something that the university values, and the pursuit of truth, which in the Enlightenment 
version of democracy was also essential, right? We had to at least agree on facts and truth to be able to negotiate our differences in a democracy. That's also under threat these days. And so what I have come to really value about my identification with university life is that I feel, and I know it's idealistic and it can sound naive, but I like to believe that there's still a space in our culture where there is that freedom of inquiry, but with the caveat that you have to show your evidence, you can't just, you know, opinions are not facts and, and other such important enlightenment assumptions about that would make democracy possible. Um, while we're talking about the critical period and we're in a time where young people, I guess, in university develop uh, some sort of agency, a lot of your students in your class that's in our Novus Think Tank talked about how you would often discuss the locus of control. And a question I have about the locus of control is that because the locus of control is about believing that you have agency, then how much of what we are allowed to believe in terms of, in terms of our agency is affected by our environment? So i.e. like the differences of growing up in contemporary America, very capitalistic, neoliberal, dog-eats-dog kind of world versus a society which believes in hard determinism like Calvinism. Like, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, well, let me let me take the the capitalism neoliberalism thing because that's the culture that you know I was raised in. So we we have the I mean the notion of agency and consent is so central to American ideologies, right? Not just political ones, and yet we have to be circumspect about how we are not actually choosing what we think we're choosing. And let me just take capitalism, Coke or Pepsi, right? So you think you're choosing, but really a choice has been but made. Like Coke, obviously. <laughs> right. You saw my Diet Coke here? Yeah. Democrat or Republican, right? So there are, there are already these choices that have been made for us. And I'll tell you a little anecdote that I've never forgotten. I had the opportunity when I was in college to study abroad. I was in West Berlin. This before the wall came down. I got to travel throughout Eastern Europe under communism. And, you know, they obviously envied me, my freedoms. And I kind of, not that I wished them to be in the state they were living at all, but it was fascinating to see a culture in which everybody was driving the same kind of car, right? So that there was no sense of competition or envy about something as unimportant as a car. If a book was published by the state, they got to all read it at the same time. Like they had a translation of a Mark Twain work come out in East Germany when I was there. And like a million people are reading it and talking about it. And when I came back to the United States, I suddenly realized how profoundly materialistic our culture is, that it prizes property. That is like such a, an unquestioned value by so many people. Anyway, a friend of mine from Poland, from communist Poland, came to the U.S. to visit sponsored by my family. And he went to the grocery store to get some uh, toothpaste. And he came back and he was in tears. You remember the story? <laughs> he was in tears because there were so many kinds of toothpaste and he couldn't choose. Um, and Dostoevsky argues in The Grand Inquisitor, the chapter in the Brothers Karamazov, the Grand Inquisitor, I shouldn't say Dostoevsky, the, the Grand Inquisitor says that human beings actually don't want freedom. Freedom is terrifying because there are so many options. What do you do with your freedom? So in effect, in effect, he's arguing, most people wanna give away their freedom and be told what to do. And I think groups do that. 
you know, I, I, I've seen so many cases in my own personal life and family and friends of people who just give themselves over to a group or a system and a way of being that makes life simpler. And I have great sympathy for that. I think freedom is scary. So that's one way in which our culture thinks that we value freedom. I don't have to wear a mask, right? That this is somehow traitorous to say to somebody, you have to wear a mask. When in fact, there are all these ways in which those very people don't understand their own lack of freedom, right? Because they have already chosen a whole set of assumptions and beliefs and are living them out without considering alternatives. I can totally see why it's easier to not be free because when you are free, there's no metric for success. There's nothing telling you you're going in the right direction. Right. So this we all want identity too, because if we don't have an identity, who are we? But maybe that's not the right way to look at it, right? right. Maybe we should all think of ourselves as multiple. And, you know, we, we act different parts in different contexts. And that's not hypocrisy. That's not lacking in integrity. It just means that we are our own kind of little cities in a self. So something you said earlier really resonated with me when you talked about the idea of seeking truth, which I thought was really interesting because at least culturally, I've noticed a development where the phrase seeking truth has been used to uplift personal experiences. So like in psychology, one of the methods of treatment is um, it helps people deal with like trauma and stuff is that they encourage them that like this is their truth and that like nothing can change you know their perception of it or like that was how they perceive it so i i wanted to hear some more about you talked about like the philosophy of seeking truth as this is like very different than what you talked about i mean it so depends on the discipline i mean that's the other great thing is that there are different ways of conceiving truth right what is the truth of the the human genome right that's a very different question Mm -hmm. what is the truth about human destiny or, you know, what is the truth in history? And so I'll stick with the humanities because, and I mentioned history because truth ends up being about narratives. And we don't say that a narrative, a novel is true or false. We already know it's a work of fiction, but the truth of a novel might actually be relational. In other words, mm -hmm. how plausibly do we find the arrangement of human beings and their points of view in a work of fiction. We all know the feeling of reading a work of fiction that is bad and going, that just doesn't ring true, right? What is it that tells us that's not the way life is? <clears throat> if we read formula fiction for one thing, we usually suspend our expectation that popular fiction is going to tell us the truth about the way life is lived. And instead we're expecting a different kind of truth, the truth of the neat plot. But we know that our own lives are not that neatly plotted. So we, we come to different kinds of narratives with different expectations about truth. But the, what you're talking about, um, and I think that was one of the questions you mentioned to me, was about how one ends up writing your own personal narrative, right? And memoirs today are often very truthy without being always fact-based and truthful. Yeah. Because maybe the important therapeutic or psychotherapeutic point is to construct a narrative that makes sense. And making sense maybe is different from being true. And I remember I had a professor in college when I was wrestling with my faith and I said, you know, I don't know if I believe the Book of Mormon is true, right, as an historical document. And he said, is there anything in the book that is meaningful to you? 
And one of the great quotes in that book that I do still remember is there is opposition in all things, which I think is profoundly true, whether it's the level of the atom or of human society, there's always opposition. And once I said there was something meaningful in it, he just looked at me and shrugged like, well, there you go. And that was profoundly liberating because it taught me a way of reading that I don't go to a text necessarily to get certain things that are true. This one thing I love about teaching in thematic option is you're all coming from all these disciplines that have different sets of assumptions about what you're looking for as evidence or what the whole point of reading a text is. Wow, I'm so glad my poorly worded question resulted in such a good That wasn't all poorly worded. I was just like, tell me more. Um, so we have a few questions that are actually in a similar vein. These are kind of like our finishing questions. But do you think it's possible to be wholly accepted? Because in order to belong to a group, do you think there has to be an element of self-betrayal to conform? Or like the, we talk a lot about, you know, naturalization of behaviors. So kind of changing what is becomes naturalized to belong. Or do you think there is a way to kind of be as authentic as possible while still fitting into these collections? Oh, a absolutely. I think it's not only possible, it's necessary. And I, I very much disagree with Emerson here in Self-Reliance, where he says, you know, to to not conform is to be the genius who has soul and is in touch with the true reality and to be a conformist. He says, imitation is suicide. Well, if you put it that way, I mean, yeah, we can all imagine kind of a robotic conformity and imitation of the group in which we've lost all individuality, but do you really know people like that? I mean, some, sometimes they verge on it, right? I mean, I, I for one could never have been part of a fraternity because I just get nervous when everybody has to either dress alike or go through a ritual. I don't know why, I'm just kind of allergic to that, but they're not losing themselves. They're maybe chipping away at their authentic self that they haven't yet discovered, who knows. But I think in groups, it's important sometimes to, I don't wanna call it betrayal, that you use betrayal or, or conformity so much as accommodation. When we, like for example, when we're in a classroom, all of us are not saying what's on our mind even as we're trying to say something meaningful. Do you see what I mean? Because we understand that there are other people in the room who are there for, we're all there for a shared purpose. So to carry on about, you know, what you're resenting that morning or, you know, to go off on personal tangents is sort of a waste of our collective time. It doesn't mean that you're betraying yourself. Maybe it's instead a way of being true to yourself to forget yourself for a little while. I mean, I love teaching because I don't have personal thoughts for a couple hours, you know, like sometimes it's good to just lose yourself. I don't want to always be true to, to me. I don't think I'm that important in the scheme of things. I think a lot of other people are really much more interesting and life is lived in the in-betweenness, which only groups can give us. But to the extent that you are, and a lot of people do this. I mean, look at people who follow cults, for example. There's an extreme case, right? Where the group identification takes over all agency, all thought. I mean, that's truly terrifying. And so that's what one always has to be cognizant of. And even in academic context, I mean, I can go to a conference or be in a department meeting where I hear a kind of group think come out, very intelligent people, seemingly liberated, but they're all kind of conforming to a kind of vocabulary or a kind of moral posture that even though I might agree with it makes me uneasy because I know that they are other 
than how they're presenting, you know, in that moment of consensus. So I think it's, again, it's always in the lived moment in every detail of how you are in the world where you are making decisions about where you assert your individual difference and where you sit back and you listen and maybe you silence yourself for a moment at least to allow others to be heard for there to be some kind of accommodation to a larger goal. But, you know, I, I've been terrified in the last several months about this country um, because of um, that complete break from what I call reality or a set of facts, right? That there are millions of people who believe strongly certain things that I think I know objectively are not true, whether it's QAnon or, or what have you. And once that happens, and once there's a kind of cult-like devotion to a leader, then you see the roots of fascism, which, you know, it, it means bundle in Italian, fesh, the, the root there, that they're all bundled together in a disidentification of their own fellow Americans as the true enemies. And so I've never been so worried about the country as I am now. You didn't ask about that and here I'm going off on a tangent. Okay, but, yeah. but you know, I'm, I'm not nearly so worried about people losing their authenticity on a college campus as I am, even though there are threats to it, there's no question, but as I am about the country as a whole. Right, yeah, this is kind of connected to our next question where it's that, you know, a lot of times those people that are, you know, falling victim to misinformation or are very passionate about the politics that you just mentioned, you know, a lot, all of that comes with context, right? There are circumstances that prompted them in that direction, you know, just wake up and want to be a fascist or, or even a Trump supporter, you know, there's a long line of history and psychological science that goes in that plays into all of those things. So similar to to this topic, just you know, we've talked a lot about how important these external factors, how they affect our identity or can affect what we believe in. How do you kind of stay afloat? Because you know, we're not autonomous beings. We're not like in full control. How do you keep from getting just almost like depressed of you know from all of these external influences? Like, how can you feel like you're an independent person. That's a great, great question. And here's where I think being in college is both thrilling and terrifying because you are in formation. And I'm not saying that in a condescending way, believe me. I, I yeah, our brains aren't done yet. They're just not. You're, well, not, I don't, I don't <laughs> mean that, but I mean, it's not even about the intellect so much is that, you know, your story is unwritten. Like you have a past that you can write and revise and reimagine, right? That does exist. But in terms of the number of years ahead of you, that's, that's a lot of blank pages. So I can say that for myself at my late middle age, what has kept me grounded, and it was mostly trial and error, I guess, is that I, I didn't realize until now just how absolutely important relationships are in one's life. And I'm not talking about primary relationship or even, you know, family. Of course, family becomes hugely important if you do have a family. I don't have one, but boy, am I like a kind of uncle to so many kids, not just related to me, but others. So there, there's that sense of kinship, but also of deep friendship. Goethe had this wonderful phrase called elective affinities. Those affiliations you choose, not the ones that are chosen for you, but that you decide <clears throat> this matters to me. And to time really is wonderful in the way that those bonds deepen with time and they feel 
rock solid to me, many of them. You know, you lose friends, no doubt, there are conflicts in relationships, but to the extent that you can find common souls, people who get you, appreciate you for who you are, it's a real help in the world. You know, you can't be autonomous and think, well, I'm a good person and I'm fine. Um, we all need validation. We all need dialogue. We need responsiveness. I mean, I still, if somebody doesn't respond to me, I feel almost existentially threatened, which sounds narcissistic. It's not. It's sort of like, I mean, Virginia Woolf said, no echo, that is one's death. Like we want to know that there are other people out there listening and responding. And so building those kinds of relations, um, sharing suffering with other people, giving yourself to other people is incredibly gratifying. And, and that may not seem like a rock solid foundation, but I don't know any other such foundation. I, I really don't. Okay, that's great. Yeah, we have one last question and it's, um, what's something that you are really grateful for? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really grateful for the love in my life, you know, that comes from so many different places, but especially, you know, the, the family that I love, I'm, I'm so grateful for them. I'm grateful for my friends. And I'm really grateful for my job because, and I'm not saying this to pander, I, I just feel so grateful that I get to make a living doing something that is meaningful to me. And I know that, you know, we live in an age where everybody wants to be pre-professional in college, but, you know, I just think whatever person studies, they should love what they're studying. Love is the only thing that's going to carry you through. And love has many forms, you know, but love is that thing you just keep wanting to come back to because it feels right. So I'm really grateful for that. I mean, I have a friend who <laughs> we were roommates in college and he's like very, very rich as this corporate lawyer. And he's like, do you ever think about retiring? And I was like, you know, I actually haven't thought about retiring. He's like, oh, I can't wait to retire. And he said, I envy you that you don't, that you're not dying to retire. So that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Great to see you, Camille. Well, it's nice to meet you, Tejin. And oh, uh, yeah, thank you so thank much, Professor Hanley. Yeah, for, uh, we're really for being excited. Us. Yeah. All right, I'll see you soon. Or talk Bye, to you. Thank later. you so much. Bye. I really appreciate it. So much. Have a good one. A nice day. You too.